Well, good morning. I'd like to welcome you all to Christ Community Bible Church. We are indeed glad you are with us this morning. We've now come to that time in our service where we open up God's Word. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please open it up to the book of 2 Timothy. We'll begin in chapter 1. But before I begin, I too would like to wish all of the mothers in the room and with us via technology a blessed and happy Mother's Day. And I'd like to also expand it to, to all women who've had roles in training, cherishing, and raising children, foster moms, stepmoms, aunts, sisters, and dear family friends. As Jared said, the, the daughters of Eve. Uh, there is a unique nurturing quality and tender ability that women have that allows them to connect with the hearts of children, and we're thankful for that. So in preparing for today, Mother's Day, I did a little research about Mother's Day because I love history and I wanted to find out a little bit more. In the United States, Mother's Day has come to mean a couple things. Today will be the one day of the year with the greatest number of phone calls, approximately a 37% increase over most days of the year. And approximately one-fourth, one-quarter that's almost 25%, Jared. Uh, <laughs> one quarter of all flowers purchased throughout the year are purchased around Mother's Day. And it will be, well, it normally was prior to COVID, the busiest day of the year for restaurants. And it's estimated this year that Americans will spend more than $28 billion on their moms. And the greeting card is the most popular gift given on Mother's Day. Mother's Day became official here in the United States in 1914 by a presidential proclamation. The second Sunday in May was chosen, and President Woodrow Wilson invited people of the United States to display the American flag at their homes or other suitable places as a public expression of our love and reverence for mothers of this country. The idea for Mother's Day was conceived by a woman named Anna Mae Jarvis. She was the daughter of Anne Reeves Jarvis, and Anna wanted to honor her mother and all mothers for the sacrifices they make for children. Now, prior to the Civil War, her mother had organized something called Mother's Day Work Clubs, and, and the purpose of it was to teach young mothers how to properly care for children. And after the war, she rallied women to work for reconciliation. After her mother died in 1905, Anna wanted a day for people to go to church and to spend time with their mothers. But she became more than unhappy as commercialization of the holiday quickly grew after it was made a national holiday. She ended up spending most of her time and money attempting to restore the day as she had once envisioned honoring mothers for their sacrifice. So now during my research on these facts of Mother's Day, I came across a website that had an article dedicated to gifts for Mother's Day. The idea is that the right gift can make the day very special for mothers. Now, the, the article was titled, The Ultimate Mother's Day Gift Ideas. Now, if it had just been Mother's Day gift ideas, I probably would have passed over it. But this is the ultimate Mother's Day gift ideas. So I had to click on it. In the article, besides telling me that I should make the day special for my mother, and I want to do that. It offered gift ideas to express that sentiment. 
and it had several lists of gifts you could give. And one of the lists was gift ideas for your wife. I'm a single man, never been married, that doesn't apply to me. Had gift ideas from a daughter. Great idea, still doesn't apply. And then gift ideas for a new mom. Strike three for me. You hear what was missing? Gift ideas from a son. That's my category. That's where I fall in. And since the article did not provide any ideas, I will. So here it is. Write a check to your sister and say, please get mom something nice from the both of us. <laughs> if you don't have any sisters, I've got nothing for you on that. But that's what I do. Well, this morning, the gift for mothers is from God's word. And it's, both, it's going to be both instruction and encouragement. We are going to look at the faith passed down from, from, from mother to daughter to son. Other than their names, we know almost nothing about the women. Their names were Lois and Eunice, except for their legacy of faith. What is a mother's legacy of faith? I have three things. It is a sincere faith, an instructive faith, and a contagious faith. But before we begin, let us pray and ask the Lord to guide our hearts and our minds through this time in his word. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we come to your word this morning expecting to hear from you. We celebrate the blessing of godly mothers and look to you to guide us by your word in this hectic and broken culture. This morning, we gladly declare that you alone are worthy of praise and of honor, for you alone are holy and righteous. You created all things and called them good. But when mankind, the pinnacle of your creation, rebelled, you had mercy and compassion, and you promised salvation. In your perfect timing, you sent your own son to become fully human while remaining fully God, that he might rescue us from our sin. He was born into humble beginnings and lived a perfect life. He was crucified for our sin and rose again from the dead. Now all who put their trust in, in your son can have eternal life. We praise you for your love and your mercy. And now we come to your precious word. So Lord, we ask for wisdom and understanding. Help us to grasp the wondrous truths given to us by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. May your word encourage us to seek greater knowledge of you, sweeter fellowship with you, and a deeper love for your holy word. And Lord, I pray that you will use your servant, though frail and weak and greatly flawed, to declare your truths from your word. Let me speak love and truth for your name's sake. Amen. So if you have your copies of uh, copy of God's Word, it may look like this or it may be some sort of electronic device that you're now searching for 2 Timothy. Please turn to chapter 1. That's where we'll be this morning. And I'm just going to read a couple verses out of chapter 1 that, that we're going to begin with this morning. And verses 4 and 5, Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, 
a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. The Apostle Paul is writing to his beloved child in the Lord, Timothy. At the writing of this letter, Paul is in prison. Now, he had been in prison before, but he expected to be let out. Now he was in prison waiting his execution. Tradition has it that he was in Mamertine prison in Rome. And if so, that was a ghastly place to be. He most likely was in an underground chamber with a single hole above for air and food and water. He beckons Timothy to come visit him and to bring John Mark with him. And we have no idea if Timothy and John Mark made it before Paul was executed. But Paul also writes this letter to encourage Timothy to stand firm and to continue to work the gospel ministry. He says, fan fan into flame the gift of God. Guard the good deposit. Preach the word. See, Timothy was the son of a Jewish mother who was a believer. He was the son of a Gentile father who was not a believer. Timothy and his family lived in a town called Lystra. And during Paul's first missionary journey, he went to Lystra. He came from a town called Iconium that they weren't very happy with him there. And when he learned they were going to try to kill him, he went on and went to Lystra. And while he was in Lystra, he actually healed a man who'd been crippled from birth. And and now Lystra also had a, a, a temple to the god Zeus as you entered in. And so when he had healed this crippled man, everybody thought that, that Paul and Barnabas were, were Zeus and Hermes, the gods come back, and they wanted to offer sacrifices. And Paul had to begin preaching a sermon that, no, they're just men, and you want to tell them about the true God. And while he's doing that, some of the Jewish men who didn't like him from Iconium tracked him down. They dragged him out of the city and stoned him and left him for dead. He didn't die, rose up and continued on to a town called Derby. Paul had a habit of retracing his steps and he would go back through Lystra and he set up elders in every church that he had. Well, on his second missionary journey a few years later, he again went to Lystra. And this time he encountered a man, a disciple named Timothy, well spoken of by the brethren. Paul encouraged him to go with them and to continue with Paul on his missionary journey. And the two would be in ministry together. After serving for about 10 years, the apostle Paul was coming to the end of his life and he knew it. And he was passing his torch of ministry to this young man. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, he says, let no one look down on you because of your youth. Timothy was young. Timothy had a weak constitution. He had frequent ailments and a weak stomach. He was naturally timid and shy. He was so different from the great apostle who had trained him. And the great apostle who had been trained in the prestigious school of Gamaliel and then personally instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what are Timothy's academic qualifications? What are his credentials that he should be the one to take up the ministry of the great apostle Paul? In which great hall of learning did Timothy gain such a profound knowledge that he would be so well spoken of by the brethren? It was the same classroom that most people first sit and learn. It was at the feet of his mother. Listen again. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice now. And now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. What is this faith that he had? The faith that was passed down from mother to son. Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote in 2 Corinthians, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. You see, the faith he's talking about here is not the faith that awakens you to salvation, the faith that but by grace through faith you can be saved. This faith is something more. It includes that. Oh, yes. But this faith is even something more. The faith that Jesus truly lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again from the dead. A faith that says when we trust in Christ to have paid the penalty for our sins, we obtain the righteousness of Christ. There's a faith that was itself a gift that awakened a dead soul to hear and believe and trust in Christ Jesus. But there's more. The faith refers to the entirety of of the Christian life and doctrine. Paul says in Titus that we are to be sound in faith, that we are to adhere to the teachings of Scripture. Our faith is bound to the truths of the sacred text. We, for example, we believe that God created all things. We believe that our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God and humanity inherited that sin nature. We believe that sin separates us from God. And unless God does something on our behalf, we are without hope. We believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. We believe God gave us his written word contained in the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. We believe Jesus was fully and eternally God. So at the incarnation, he took on full humanity while remaining fully God. By doing so, he could live a perfect life and be sacrificed for mankind. He was like us in every way, except that he was without sin. But even that, and much more, is is not complete of what this faith is about. You see, it's more than just checking certain doctrines We are to rightly examine our conduct and our thinking and to make sure that it all lines up with what we say we believe about Christ. In other words, do we live like all of that is true? Part of what we believe is the transforming power of the gospel. We are new creatures. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We should look act and sound different because of that. We should have true joy 
gleaming in our faces. In 1994, I was part of a team that took 27 teenagers to a city on the Black Sea in Russia called Sochi. We were there to do evangelism for one month. There were three teams of 27 teenagers each. Each team had a male and female leader for that team. For the most part, all three teams lived in the same hotel for the duration. But to encourage team bonding, there would be a brief period of time where each team would go out by themselves and do ministry just on their own. Well, our team was scheduled to travel on what is called a village trip. And we were supposed to go up into the hills from the Black Sea to a small town. We were told, there, there's a church there and the pastor is expecting you. The pastor has arranged for a place for you to stay, knows where to go get food, and this is where you'll be doing ministry. Well, after a long day of bus ride to get there, when we finally arrived in this small village, there was no market there to buy food. There was no church there in that village, and let alone a pastor there to help us. And not knowing what to do, we thought, well, two hours ago, we passed through a large city on the coast. Let's go back down there. So we drove back down to the coast, to this city, but we still didn't have a place to stay, food to eat. And so with my co-leader and a translator, we started walking, looking for where could we possibly stay. And as we're walking, now I'm in a foreign country. I don't speak Russian at all. Uh, I, I am big. And when big guys smile, that, that actually speaks volumes to a lot of people. They feel more comfortable. And so I could communicate that way with people. But as we're walking along, uh, a gentleman called out to us. And through the translator, I found out that he had asked, are you Christians? Which I thought was a very odd question. Why do we look like Christians? Are we wearing something? Yes, I'd say we look like Americans. But are you Christians? And so I asked. I said, first, yes, we are Christians. And why do you ask? And he said, because you're smiling. And I thought, surely I wasn't smiling. I've got 27 teenagers. I've got a female co-leader, two translators. I don't know where we're staying tonight. I'm carrying around a bundle of cash in a foreign city. And I don't even know where we're going to eat yet. There was stress going on. I don't know that I was smiling, so I'm going to give that up to the ladies, that they were smiling and something was going on. But the man recognized, he saw, the, he saw something in the faces that said, they're different. We should be like that. Also, the way we treat others, especially believers, should be evident to all. Jesus said, on the night he was betrayed, he said, a new commandment I give unto you that you should love one another even as I have loved you, so must you love one another. And by this, by this love for one another, all men will know you are my disciples. If you have that love for one another. What kind of love is that? That we're supposed to love others like Christ loved us. Well, the example was given by Jesus himself earlier that night when he washed the disciples' feet. Jesus served the disciples and he's saying, look, see how I served you and I loved you through that service? That's how you're to love one another. 
You see, beloved, if we do that, if we live like that, if those of us who are believers who gather here together at Christ Community Bible Church love each other like that, the world takes notice. They may not like us, but they'll take notice that we are followers of Jesus Christ because of that love for one another. When we are transformed, when we are new believers, it should look different in our lives. Finally, our words too should reflect this new life. Only what is edifying should escape our lips. Likewise, gossip, slander, foul language, and the like should never be found on our lips. We do not know when Lois and Eunice heard of Christ and believed. It's possible that there were Jewish, uh, I should say Jews, who were at Pentecost, and they were from Lystra, and they had been to Pentecost, and they heard the Apostle Peter preach that great Pentecost sermon and believed, and then they took the gospel back to Lystra. And it was through the, the Jews returning to, to Lystra, now Jewish believers returning, that Lois and Eunice got saved. We don't know. Per, perhaps it was actually on Paul's first missionary journey when Paul went through Lystra, and they heard, and they believed. We don't know. But we, we do know, no matter what the case is, no matter which way it was, Lois and Eunice were students of Scripture, and they were awaiting the promised Messiah. They were Jewish. They knew what the promise of God was, that God would send a Messiah, and they were waiting. They were Jews who came to Christ in fulfillment of their Jewish heritage. They experienced the continuity of the old and new covenants that you can only experience through Jesus Christ. But even if Lois and Eunice were saved shortly after the Pentecost, they still only would have had the Old Testament scriptures to learn and to pass down to Timothy. So what is this sincere faith that was passed down? The book of Hebrews gives us a little bit of supernatural insight into faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen. What was the Old Testament Jew hoping for? The Messiah. The salvation. Chapter 11, the hall of the faithful, provides details about this faith and what it looked like across the ages. For it is by this same faith people of old received their commendation. This is an ancient faith, unchanging and designed by God. We'll look at a couple of examples. It says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that it is seen, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The universe is staggering in its size and glories. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and they do. The immensity of our own galaxy, let alone the universe, is, is staggering. The complexity and diversity of life on earth is similarly wonderful. And when the, writing of Hebrews, when the writer of Hebrews speaks of creation, 
It's meant to draw our minds back to Genesis, to the creation account. Creation is magnificent, but the ultimate reality is the God who created, not the creation. Not the creation. Faith means seeing beyond the visible to seeing the spiritual. Hebrews says a few verses later, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Even in our own society today, we see different levels of belief in God. The most basic level is the existence, the belief in the existence of a supernatural being. Sadly, in our modern culture today, People deny even that and say there is no God at all. And according to scriptures, they do not do as, even as well as the demons. For scriptures say the demons know God exists. They even believe in the Trinitarian God of scripture. And they shudder because of it. We must believe in God. Another level of the belief is that God Belief in God is what that that is rooted in Scripture. Many people believed in gods back then. But God is more than just a creator God. He's a personal God who wants to know us and to save our souls. We believe in the incarnate Christ who is fully God and fully human, who lived and walked on this earth. And yet this basic belief is under attack. Darwinian evolutionists try to create a universe devoid of God. People don't want to have to answer to a higher authority. So they deny God. Well, I should say they begin by trying to suppress God. Romans chapter 1 says that the ungodly and unrighteous men will try to suppress the truth about God. And you see, it's difficult to suppress something for very long because the evidence is clearly visible, so eventually they exchange that truth for a lie. And they worship the creature rather than the creator. But it seems that all of us, no matter what, have an innate sense of the supernatural, a sense of God. And it's amazing how even children, young children, have that same sense of God, the supernatural. Years ago, while I was serving in the Air Force, I was deployed overseas to the deserts of Saudi Arabia. One of the guys in my unit, he wasn't on my crew, but he was in my unit, was not a believer. And over the time we were there, we began engaging in conversation about the spiritual. Now, we had to do it by email because we were on different crews, we were on different times, so we didn't get to see each other often, but we could at least email back and forth. And I remember at one point, we began to get a little spirited in the conversation and about his denial in the existence of God. So I repented of my tone and most likely a condescending attitude. And I told him that I wanted him to know two things about our discussion. For one, that everything I'm going to share with him is coming from Scripture. It's not me making it up. He's going to hear from the very Word of God. Whether he believes that's the Word of God or not, I wanted him to know. That's where I'm getting my information and second, I said, I want you to know that I want us to remain friends through all of this. And we did. And our conversation continued. 
when we returned to the States, we were apparently good enough friends that he invited me over to help him move some heavy furniture because that's only what you do with really good friends to, to move heavy furniture. And while we were doing this, his toddler son was out playing on the sidewalk and he was playing with bugs. Seemed insignificant to me, but not to him. See, apparently before we had gone on that, on that deployment, his son was afraid of bugs. And now he is playing with bugs. So he asked his wife, he said, hey, what happened now that, that he is, he's playing with bugs? And I loved her answer. She said, well, I told him that because God made all of the bugs too, he doesn't have to be afraid of them. So here's a man who had been denying the existence of God with me for over a month and arguing with me about it, and his own son understands the existence of God, that innate feeling that there's a supernatural being that exists, that God exists. Again, in Hebrews, we're told that by faith, Abel offered a more, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. We know about this account in Scripture. Both Cain, a tiller of the ground, and Abel, a keeper of critters, offered sacrifices to God. God had apparently prescribed how they should worship him, how you should sacrifice to him. Abel was obedient and followed the word of God. Cain did not. Cain developed his own man-made religion, and he wanted to worship as he saw fit. And when God confronted Cain about it, Cain got angry. God pleaded with Cain to do what was right and warned him that sin was, was crouching, waiting for him. Cain did not respond well to God's warning. It's interesting that Eve had to be talked into sinning and yet her son Cain could not be talked out of sinning. So Cain directed his hatred for God at his brother Abel and killed him. The faith of Abel was authentic. It was authentic worship, authentic righteousness. We know that from his sacrifice that he worshiped God as he was told to. He's called righteous in Hebrews, and Jesus even called him righteous Abel. So we learn from this. There is a right way and a wrong way to worship God, and God has directed that. The legacy of Lois and Eunice was a sincere faith passed down to Timothy. By sincere, it means it was unhypocritical. In other words, there was no disconnect between their words and their actions, no difference between their public lives and their private lives. When they returned home from church, they didn't change once out of the public eye. Their character trait is admired even today. Reporters will ask close friends or family members of famous people, what are they really like? And what they're asking, what they're saying is they must be different. And in the public, they put on a persona. They put on an act. I want to know what they're like when they're not in front of the camera. To be sincere, to have a sincere faith means it's the same. That means your public life and your private life match up. It doesn't matter if the cameras are rolling or if the microphones are listening. A sincere faith is what we desire. We want to live out our faith as we say we believe. Jesus said a tree is known by its fruit, so Christians are known by how they live out what they say they believe. Do we trust in the Lord with all our hearts, not leaning on our own understanding, acknowledging Him, knowing He will make our paths straight? Do we live like that? 
Or are we more prone to fret, worry, and panic? Do we prepare ourselves so we are always ready to give the reason for the hope we have in us? Is that how we live? We see an insincere faith, a hypocritical faith demonstrated by Peter and Barnabas and others described in Galatians. Peter was up at the church, visiting the church in Antioch. And there were both Jewish and Gentile Christians there. And Paul, I'm sorry, Peter was sitting with them and eating with them, as were, of course, Paul and Barnabas. And they were all enjoying fellowship together. But there were some who were these Jerusalem Jewish Christians who were, who were known as the, the, the men of, of James had come. And apparently they didn't agree with that. They thought that, hey, you had to become Jewish before you become Christian. They were known as Judaizers. And they had followed Peter up there. When they saw Peter eating with the Gentiles, apparently Peter saw them seeing him. And Peter quit eating with the Gentiles, as did Barnabas and all the other Jewish Christians who were in Antioch, who had once been fellowshipping together, they broke it off. So the Apostle Paul called them out on their hypocrisy. He said, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live as Jews? Paul said he confronted Peter and the others because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, it was insincere. It wasn't a sincere faith. It was hypocritical. A sincere faith is not hypocritical. So how do we demonstrate a sincere faith to our children? One is through prayer. Philippians says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do your children see you on your knees pleading with the Almighty? Do they see a reliance on prayer for all things? Are you teaching them how to pray? Do you show them how we pray for our leaders? Do you show them how we ask for help? Do you show them how we ask for forgiveness? Showing a confession of sin. You show them how we pray for our enemies. Let them see your sincere faith and how you follow Scripture regarding prayer. Number two, a way to demonstrate a sincere faith is guarding the tongue. In James 3, it says, But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring uh, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James describes the hypocrisy of allowing our words to contradict what we say we believe. In your private moments, especially around your children, what do you sound like? What utterances escape your lips? What do your children hear you say in those unguarded moments? In a world that is so unfiltered today, you will be noticed as different if you guard your tongue. 
How do you look online? What statements do you make? Again, we will look different. It says in Proverbs, like apples of gold in a setting of silver, so are words fitly spoken. Instead of words that contradict what we believe, can we be edifying? Can we be building up one another? Can we be encouraging one another? Also, a sincere faith is one of forgiveness. In Colossians, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. When the Lord Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he taught them to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is a significant part of the Christian life. It's important that we forgive one another. Jesus even told a parable about a servant who owed a great debt to a king, a debt he could never pay. And when the king forgave him, the man didn't go back and practice the forgiveness he had just received. He held a very small debt over the, the head of another servant. We're called to forgive. It's good for us to forgive. But forgiving is difficult, and God knows it's difficult. I had a former pastor who used to say, if we see something written in the Scripture once, it's important and we need to do it. If we see it in the Scripture twice, it's like God is trying to get our attention and say, hey, pay attention to this. You need to do this. If we see something in Scripture three or more times, it's like our Heavenly Father is coming up to us, putting His arms around us and saying, my child, I know this is difficult. I know this isn't easy, but I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to take you through this. I'm going to help you. And that's what we have with forgiveness because we don't want to. Sometimes we like holding things over others, but we are called to forgive. Do your children see a sincere faith in you by observing you forgiving others? Do you pray for your enemies? Do you sincerely recognize you've been forgiven much so you should freely forgive others? And finally, another hallmark of a sincere faith is to be in the Word of God. Colossians again says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Are you spending time with God and His Word? Do your children see a Bible on a shelf or on a nightstand, but never opened and in your hands? On Sunday mornings, is it where you left it when you returned from church the Sunday before? Or are you daily opening God's precious Word and learning from Him so that His Word is on your lips? Do you counsel your children from it? Second, we're told to have an instructive faith. Here, uh, here's what it says in Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says, indeed, uh, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lois and Eunice had been sharing the sacred writings with Timothy since his childhood. This is even more impressive when you recognize and remember that they most likely didn't have copies of the Scripture with them in their homes. They had memorized Scripture, and they shared it with their children. There's a scene in a movie, and I think the movie was The Nativity, and it shows Zachariah and Elizabeth with the infant John the Baptist shortly after he had been born. And I like the scene because as they are cuddling John the Baptist, they begin quoting Scripture to their newborn son. Right away, they're quoting Scripture. Paul refers to the Scripture as the sacred writings. It's probably to make a stark contrast to the mindless heresies of false teachers. We have those same sacred writings. Timothy was taught from these. If they didn't have the New Testament, it has not yet been written. But all that she needed to instruct her children were found in the Old Testament, and it all pointed to Christ. So what do we look for in the Scriptures? First, it teaches us about salvation. Scripture instructs us on sin and the woeful condition of the human soul. It teaches us that the penalty for sin is death. It teaches us that God promised He would provide a Savior. It teaches us we cannot earn our salvation through good works. It teaches us that Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. And the scriptures teach us how we are saved. It also instructs us us on how to live in the light of our salvation. Once we believe and we're counted among the saved, we learn how our lives should be different. We learn how to live and to grow and to serve. We learn wisdom. And finally, I encourage you to have a contagious faith. This is what makes it a generational faith passed down from parent to child to grandchild. Psalm 78, it says, I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have not heard, that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. The author Charles Raymond, a 19th century abolitionist, wrote this. He said, Judicious mothers will always keep in mind that they are the first book read and the last put down or put aside in every child's library. You're the first book read and the last one put aside. So here are three things, three ideas to give your children to have a contagious faith, and to be a good read. Give them the doctrine of your faith. You can almost hear it, doctrine. Yes, give them doctrine. Tell them what Scripture teaches us about God and Christ and salvation. There are many false teachers out there, each vying for a hearing with your children. The false teachers have access to your children through many avenues. And if they don't hear the truth from you, if they don't hear true doctrine from you consistently, 
then you're trusting that the few hours on Sunday morning and throughout the week will shield them from the relentless bombardment of the enemy. Give them the truth. Sing hymns, songs, and spiritual songs with one another. Speak the word to one another. Let them know the one in whom you believe. Let them hear your testimony on how God saved you. Give them the defense of your faith. In addition to doctrine, tell them why you believe. They will eventually hear false teachers and views contrary to Scripture. That will happen. They must know Scripture well enough not to be fooled by the false teachers. They must be equipped to fend off those attacks. And this task is becoming more and more difficult as the authority of Scripture is rapidly eroding in our society. Our culture no longer trusts the Bible. But more than that, they openly mock it. Your children will hear and face fierce objection to Scripture. The popular culture says that we have no everlasting soul within us. The current trend in evolution is to teach that we are made of stardust. Now, doesn't that sound magical? Hey, don't worry that life has no meaning or purpose and there's nothing beyond this life because you're stardust. That makes it all better. No, teach your children to be able to give a ready defense for the hope they have in them. It's a lot of work, yes, but it's worth it. And finally, and, and really, I think most importantly, besides giving them the doctrine of your faith and the defense of your faith, give them the delight of your faith. Your children need to see a changed life that does not look like the culture around them. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart because your heart will be aligned with His. Do your children see the joy and delight that we have from being followers of Christ? We say here at Christ Community Bible Church that we treasure Christ as our deepest delight. Is that true? Of you? Does your family see it? When we delight in the Lord, we're showing that we're trusting Him for all things. Our hope is not in this world or in our circumstances. Our hope is in the promises that we have. We have in faith in the assurance of things that are, are yet are hoped for and the convictions of things that are yet unseen. We have faith that Christ will one day return as He has promised. We have faith in a coming resurrection where even our bodies will be, we'll be saved. We have faith in our glorification when we will be made like Him. We have faith in the reign of Christ on earth and the fulfillment of all His promises. Are you giving them the delight of your faith? Nobody wants to see a grumpy-faced Christian. We don't want to hear someone talk of the greatness and the glory and the majesty of God yet speaking as if they were in a funeral procession. We don't want to see a servant of the Lord begrudgingly go through the motions of service without the delight knowing he is serving the Lord. Let us all delight in the Lord. Now, I know that all of that is very weighty. It seems like a heavy burden on parents and, and on mothers. To be honest, it is. Being a parent, being a mother is a tremendous joy, but it's also a labor of love. But we have the assistance.